Hi, everyone. I'm Professor Sally Eaves, and a very warm welcome to the Siemens Mobility Podcast, Moving Beyond, Series 2. I think today's topic could not be more topical and timely for us all, namely the Clean Air Fund. Today, air pollution must get the same attention as climate protection does. They're two sides of the same coin in so many ways, and aspects such as the data situation and transparency around air pollution must be urgently improved. I think the theme also aligns so well with what we discussed earlier on this series, all around making transportation easier, cleaner, more transparent and more sustainable too, to foster areas such as decarbonisation and improve air quality. So let's dive into all the detail today. And to do so, I'm delighted to be joined by two fantastic guests. Firstly, we have Eva Shearer, who is Siemens Head of Investor Relations. Welcome, Eva. Thank you, Sally. Um, Great to be here. Fantastic. And lovely to see you again after Intertrans as well. It's lovely to be there in person. So fantastic. Thank you, Eva. And equally, a very warm welcome to Jane Burston, who is Executive Director and Founder of the Clean Air Fund. Welcome, Jane. Thanks, Sally. Pleasure. Lovely to meet you today. And I thought perhaps we could start our episode with a little bit of a warm up, kind of getting to know you a little bit more and kind of setting the scene a bit. So as one example, using technology this morning, I was checking the weather app, kind of seeing what the situation was. It's going to rain locally. I'm in London today, seeing what the situation was. Um, But I also checked the air quality, too. Um, And I looked at it and it was saying kind of low pollution for today. So do you think that is optimistic? Is that too good to be true? Is that something you check as well? Is it a seamless thing for you? Perhaps for you first, Jane. Yeah, I think sadly it is too good to be true. I mean, in London today, um, I checked it as well, actually, this morning, and um, it is low, but it depends really what street you're on, what time of the day, what the weather's like as well. And there's always going to be pockets in a city of very high air pollution, um, especially a lot of the time, some of the lowest income neighbourhoods end up having the highest pollution, either because they're next to busy roads or industrial facilities. Um, so there's a huge amount of variability, which you often don't see in the maps or when you check the kind of general concentration across the town. Absolutely. It's that, that kind of old adage, isn't it, about location really matters. It's that granularity that makes such a difference. I couldn't agree more. Eva, what do you see from that point of view? I checked it also this morning. I'm in our Siemens Berlin office today. And actually in Berlin, the air quality was only moderate today. So I don't know, maybe a bit more realistic then. I have to say also the air wasn't that clear, but we also know that it's not always what we see. But then, yeah, Berlin today, not green, but yellow. Absolutely. That amber status. Thank you, Eva. Appreciate mm-hmm. that. So now we've set the scene a little bit. We've already seen some differences already and, and the, the trust aspect of, of what you're seeing. And again, that granularity of location. Um, but I'd love to dive into some more of the detail and kind of bring us on to our first main topic area today. So I mentioned it really, I teed it up in the introduction. We need to give that same focus to air pollution as we do to climate protection. Um, and to set the scene, I wanted to share a particular stat as well. So it's quite incredible, really. 99% of the world's population today is exceeding uh, in terms of breathing in air quality that exceeds the World Health Organization's recommendations on on guidelines on quality. So we have a massive opportunity here to improve public health and climate change and tackle these things together because they are intertwined. Burning fossil fuels, sorry, these problems are tackled together. They can't be siloed and treated separately. So let's look at the how about this and kind of where we've got to where we are today. So Jane, I'd love to bring you in first. Why is attention to air quality quality so low worldwide? Um, I think, I mean, sometimes the attention actually is a lot higher than you think. Um, 
we did a survey actually during COVID with um, people from around the world asking how much of an issue is air pollution to you? Uh, How concerned are you about it? Do you want to see changes made in your country? And what we saw was that more than two thirds of people thought that it was a um, a big or very big problem, uh, regardless of where they were in the world. And they ranked it in the top three health and environmental concerns, you know, and this is during COVID, where obviously infectious disease is top of the list. Uh, mental health usually comes in the top three and air pollution as well. So I think um, in general, the awareness of air pollution is pretty high and people do want to see something being done. Um, We also see over the last kind of five to 10 years, there's been a huge increase in the amount of um, evidence about the health impacts of pollution. And, um, you know, we we typically will associate pollution with um, respiratory conditions. And they're one of the main things that different types of pollution cause. But one of the things that we've learned recently is that these tiny particles, part of particulate matter, the very small ones, when you breathe them in, they can actually get into your bloodstream through your lungs. And so they're causing illnesses that people don't typically associate with air pollution, like about 25% of heart attacks are caused by air pollution, large number of strokes. And uh, the research has recently linked air pollution to dementia as well. So I think whilst I, I do think that the, the awareness is pretty high and people are concerned, there could be a lot more awareness. And that certainly could be translating quite a lot more into increased political will to do something about it. Absolutely. And I think that visibility aspect is a key one. What do you think, Jane, in terms of making this issue more visible and centre stage? Yeah, well, I think, I mean, we talked at the beginning of the, the conversation about data and, you know, I don't know how many people like the three of us have looked on our uh, local websites to see what air pollution is at the beginning of every day. Certainly in some parts of the world, um, you get air pollution reports on the radio. So I spend a reasonable amount of time in India and there's very often charts in a hotel, like live live monitors in the hotel reception or uh, reports on the radio telling you uh, the level of pollution. So you can decide whether or not to go out and do exercise today, for example. Um, but in most parts of the world, it's a lot less visible than that, um, partly because in a lot of places, there just isn't the data. Um, I know that in Africa, for example, only 10 countries have any air pollution monitoring at all. Um, and that's most usually just a couple or a few um, reference grade monitors, maybe in the biggest city. So for most people, they just don't have a sense of what the pollution is like because nobody does because it's not being measured. Totally understand that. Again, when we want to kind of form that collective action, we need to help people be more aware and be more conscious and be enabled to make those decisions. So that visibility absolutely matters and making it easy and really accessible for people. Totally agree with that. And Eva, I'd love to kind of move on to another area that's related to this is, you know, are you seeing a lack of commitment in this global flight for air quality? And what are the reasons behind what you're seeing, do you think? As you said in your introduction, 99% of the world's population breathing air that is harmful to their health. That makes it very clear that this is a public health emergency. And considering that fact, I still believe the topic is severely underrepresented in the public discussion. As Jane is saying, it's getting better and there is an increased awareness now. But when you consider the health impact, not enough people are talking about it and not enough people are demanding action might also have to do with the 
general political and macroeconomic environment that we're having. I mean, we were also just coming out or not even coming out of a pandemic yet. Um, so people have a lot to deal with. And I think that adds to it. And then climate change is just the big overarching topic. But then we shouldn't forget air pollution, which locally is extremely harmful to people's health. And that's why we as a society, businesses, and then also obviously individuals and governance need to step up their action and need to do so much more. I totally agree with you. There's more that we can do by coming together. Um, and Jane, that brings me on to the Alliance for Clean Air. A lovely segue there. Um, can you tell us more about it and kind of the most key tasks that you're kind of bringing to the audience at the moment, and the commitments about being involved in that? Yes, absolutely. So the Alliance is a coalition of multinational businesses that uh, want to work together to reduce air pollution. Um, it was brought together by the World Economic Forum and supported by the Clean Air Fund. And uh, Siemens was the first signatory to it, which I'm sure Eva will talk a little bit more about. Um, we launched it at the climate change negotiations in Glasgow last year. Um and we're going to be reporting back on progress so far at the next climate change negotiations. Um, and there's three things that the companies have collectively committed to as being part of the alliance. The first one is to measure and reduce their own air pollution footprint. I mean, that's quite unique. There isn't at the moment a methodology for measuring an air pollution footprint if you're a business. So over the last year, the, the group has been working together and with the Stockholm Environment Institute um, to come up with that methodology, to test it, uh, to see if it's robust enough and practical. Um, and that will be being released at the, at the event at the COP. Um, the second commitment is to work with stakeholders to help raise awareness of pollution and championing the cause. So that might be telling employees in countries that are very affected how they can protect themselves and how they can reduce their exposure, uh, working with governments to champion ambitious action there, um, or working with customers. And then the third area is that each business is looking to use its own unique assets to further the cause. So we've got some great uh, examples of um, pilot projects that some of these businesses have done, either on supporting monitoring, like Google have put um, regulatory grade monitors in street view cars, so that as the street view cars drive around taking their photos, they can also be sampling pollution at a really granular level that has never been monitored before. Um uh, all the way through to making changes in the supply chain. And an example there is that um, IKEA have started to buy uh, the crop stubble from Indian farmers that would otherwise have been burned and use that as either a raw material for uh, straw-based products like straw table mats or um, as a fuel in their manufacturing facilities. The lovely examples there. Thank you so much for sharing that. And Eva, um, we was mentioned there about you know Siemens being a founding partner of the Alliance for Clean Air. Can you tell me more about that decision and how you're involved and next steps? As Jane said, I mean, air pollution is such an important topic. And with the World Economic Forum, we've been discussing that as part of the Global Future Council for Clean Air. And it became very clear that the private sector is not getting involved enough. And that's when we said it's time to really initiate the first private sector initiative on air pollution, to fight air pollution, really. And so that's when um, we 
talked about um, how we can bring companies together and who could be part of it. And it was also clear that we need big multinational corporations to really push this message and fully commit to it. And then me working for Siemens, also being active with the World Economic Forum, for me, it was clear that we need to be part of it because Siemens sustainability has always been a business imperative for us. Uh, we were also uh, well ahead of the curve when it comes to climate action. Um, we do obviously agree with the United Nations position that access to a healthy environment is a human right. And so, yes, we committed to it. Um, it was also very clear for the Siemens Managing Board that this is something that we wanted to be part of. And I think Siemens being the first founding member really to sign on to the alliance, that certainly helped to then get other members also in, on board and, and make it yeah, a bigger, a bigger commitment and a bigger group of, of, of companies ultimately. And I think the important topic is also, obviously, we're looking into our internal operations, we're looking into our supply chain, but we're also using our individual technologies in order to fight air pollution. So it's really also about innovation and bringing together the very individual assets that we do have as companies, and then also our common voice to create awareness um, to also bring our employees, our suppliers, on our customers on board, because this is a huge network that we can also tap onto. Fantastic. As I said, I love the different elements you brought to bear there. And we've mentioned already some of the other companies involved alongside Siemens, like Google, Ikea. Um, Eva, could you share more about who else is involved and also why more companies should be part of the Alliance for Clean Air? I think that'd be fantastic. Sure, absolutely. So we have on board and, and basically we launched the alliance with 10 founding members and those were Accenture, Biogen, Bloomberg, Google, GoTo, IKEA, Maersk, Mahindra Group, Siemens and Wipro. So those are the 10 founding members. And obviously we're in discussions uh, with the next group to then be onboarded into the alliance and we'll announce that in due time. And yeah, why should more members join the alliance? I mean, the clean air movement really is at a, at a tipping point right now. And I think we've established that we need to act fast. And so we need to make sure that we get more action established. And then we also need to make sure that we measure and reduce. I mean, that's really the point where we um, get baseline data of air pollution into the sustainability reports that companies produce and then commit jointly to reduction targets and have measurable impact. And then obviously, as I said before, use our combined voices to get higher attention for the topic. If I could also jump in on, on that one, um, one of the things that we've been seeing recently is that um, there are also massively significant benefits to the economy for cleaning up the air. Um, we've always known that uh, there are huge benefits to the government of the reduction in the health and social care costs uh, of people who got sick because they were breathing in pollution. But some recent studies have really showed the productivity benefits to businesses when the air gets cleaner. Um, Dalberg did a report in India showing that uh, businesses were losing 95 billion a year uh, because of productivity losses. And that's people who aren't able to come to work because they're sick uh, because of air pollution or they're looking after their kids who are sick or they're coming to work, but they're not at full capacity because they're not very well. Um, and the specific industries that are affected, like agricultural, um, agricultural yields, solar yields, end up being lower on high air pollution days. 
um, international tourism is affected. So there's huge implications for the economy. And even in places with relatively lower levels of pollution, like the UK, the Confederation of British Industry has done a similar study and said that if the UK was able to drop pollution levels from where they are at the minute to what the World Health Organization was recommending at the time, um, then uh, UK business would save collectively £1.6 billion every single year. So there is a, you know, there's an effect on the bottom line of this. Obviously, everybody has to do it together. It's a collective uh, effort and a collective benefit. But I think that's one of the other reasons why we might be seeing more business interest and where there should be more business interest than there currently is. Absolutely. I think that's great points there. So it really is a shared value proposition, so to speak. So, and kind of brings me on to another area as well. Um, you know, I think there's often a perception or perhaps we should say really a misconception, frankly, that um, measures that are in place at the moment around climate protection, for example, are automatically measures for better air quality too. Now, I know that's not the case. I'd love to kind of smash down that perception. Could you explain some of the key differences for us? Yeah, sure. I mean, very often they can be the same thing. Um, and the reason is that uh, most of outdoor air pollution is caused by burning fossil fuels. And obviously burning fossil fuels is the major cause of climate change uh, because of the greenhouse gases that that produces. So where that's the, the they have that shared cause, then the solutions can also be shared. Uh, so when the pollution is from uh, fossil fuel use in transport or energy or industry, um, Correcting for that, the renewable energy, uh, greater use of public, clean public transport, uh, greater use of electric vehicles will bring down climate pollution and health harming air pollution. Um, There are areas where uh, something might be good for climate change and not good for air pollution. Um, One example that we've seen in the past uh, with Dieselgate is a greater use of diesel as a fuel um, you know, for on cl- climate grounds, it produces less carbon dioxide than petrol. Uh, so it's better for the climate. But what we've seen is it's really harmful in terms of NO2 pollution, which is a major factor in causing uh, respiratory problems like asthma. So um, it's not been good at all for our health. Um, another example is burning biomass. You know, uh, biomass can be renewable. It is not always renewable, it's worth saying. Um, but uh, where it is renewable, that's good for the climate. But burning biomass produces uh, the kind of particulate matter that's really harmful for our health. So we have to be super careful that when we're prioritizing climate action, that we're also looking at the health impact of the action, because there's this huge potential to do something that's great for both health and climate and the economy, like we've just been saying. Um, but there's also the risk of doing the opposite. And I think if we, if you know, with a with a shortage of, uh, of funding that there is for climate in general and for health in general in the world at the minute, uh, we would be daft if we weren't trying to prioritize for both at the same time. Absolutely. I think that interplay is so coming to the fore today. And again, it's that shared value opportunity and also around the measurement thing. So, Jane, thank you so much. And kind of a follow up from that is perhaps we could share a little bit around some best practice that we've seen, particularly looking at a local level now, about doing something better for better air um, and bring some of those examples to the fore. Um, Perhaps to you, Jane, first. Yeah, absolutely. I think so. um, the group that we work with the most is city leaders. Um, I think that's where, you know, the mayors are seeing the effect, the harmful effects of pollution. And a lot of the powers that they need are already in their control. Um, So for uh, pollution from transport, for example, 
There's things that they can do around cleaning up their public transport, so green buses uh, and rail, um, measures to reduce the number of car trips overall or to prevent the most polluting cars from driving into a city. And we've seen a lot of um, European cities, for example, uh, implementing or starting to look at implementing clean air zones or low emission zones where the most polluting vehicles are banned or there's a big fine for for driving them. Um, and uh, investment in walking and cycling infrastructure, obviously, so that people have a, a choice between different alternatives. And then there's some things that are kind of, you know, all of that uh, sounds probably quite expensive and um, and not within the realms of the budget of some local authorities. But there are some things that are really quite simple and cheap and save everybody money, like stopping vehicles idling. There's no reason to not do that. So there are some things that will have quite a big impact that uh, can be done relatively easily with uh, with just small behavioural changes. Um, And then the other major sector that we're seeing local authorities able to have an influence on is um, heating. In lots of parts of the world, heating is done through burning fossil fuels like coal or burning biomass. And especially in the winter when the weather is colder, that means that the um, temperature inversions can mean that the pollution really sits in a city uh, and, and people are breathing in a lot more because it can't blow away. So um, cities can do things like support subsidies for switching to cleaner forms of heating or support energy efficiency measures. So you don't have to use quite so much. You have to burn quite so much stuff when you're heating Um, or uh, support people in other ways like mass uh, purchase agreements for heat pumps. Fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing that. Great examples there. And I think from a city perspective, places like London and New York um, spring to mind. But I love the point you put there about some of those practical, everyday, really easy, why aren't we doing the more type of examples as well. It doesn't always have to be the latest technology, does it? It can be very practical, daily, smaller steps that can make incremental change. So really great examples there. Thank you. And Eva, I'd love to come back to talk more about some of the work that Siemens Mobility is doing specifically to support that, because I've seen some of those solutions and innovations firsthand, particularly at Innertrans. But I wonder if we could drill in a little bit more to things like mobility as a service, perhaps starting off there. No, absolutely. And I mean, to start off, 25% of worldwide greenhouse gas emissions are caused by the transport sector. And I think we can all agree that we cannot decarbonize the transport sector without rail. And when we also consider that by 2050, we believe that passenger and freight volume will actually double. And so rail is obviously the the solution. So the business model of seamless mobility is inherently sustainable. I just wanted to establish that to start off with, but then just to maybe give you a couple of examples of what we're doing there and how that can then improve air quality. I mean, mobility as a service is a great example because obviously we're also working on producing the most sustainable trains. And that, for example, would be replacing diesel trains with hydrogen trains or battery-powered trains for non-electrified road, but routes. But then why does um, mobility as a service is so important? Because how do we get people to use sustainable modes of transport? If they still take their car and they don't take the train, we don't really have an advantage out of that. So we need to make it as comfortable and convenient as possible for people to choose the sustainable routes. And for that, we do provide apps that connect different modes of transport from the first mile to the last and enable then the passenger to plan, book and pay 
via one app and one single sign-on. And then also during the uh, within these apps, obviously, we can also show um, what is the route that causes the lowest amount of emission, and then maybe also going forward, the lowest levels of pollution, which is something we don't have yet, but with emissions we can do it already, to then convince people to do the right thing. But making it very comfortable and very convenient. And I think that is really that is really key because if we continue to have like a different app for every city and then I think we've all experienced that you arrive at an airport and you don't really know what ticket to buy and what subway line is going to get you to your destination, then you think, okay, I'm just going to take a taxi. But... If we combine it in a really smart way, and of course, we also need a lot of governmental for support for that. We need support of the public transport providers in order to also build coalitions and do it as a countrywide network. But we have rolled it out in countries to really have that one-stop shop for mobility. And we do see that then people are adapting to it and they're changing their behaviors. Thank you, Eva. So at this point, I think we'll move on now to our next topic cluster, really looking into the data situation and transparency around air pollution and how this must be improved. We've talked about this already to a degree. We've seen that some of the data on air quality and sources of local pollution are a really essential aid to identify and manage more effectively and be contextually appropriate in terms of the solutions we build. There's also a collective opportunity to harmonise around greenhouse gas emissions estimation methodologies. And alongside this, also around air pollution inventories too. So it's all about this joined up action coming together. So Jane, I wonder if we can unpack for the audience a bit more, what are the key pollutants that must be focused on to improve air quality assessment? Yes, the the main type of air pollution that's damaging to our health is called PM 2.5. The PM bit stands for particulate matter. And it's basically small bits of stuff, uh, things like dust and soot or smoke, Uh, It could be solid particles, it could be liquid droplets. And um, we talked a bit about how a lot of air pollution is from burning fossil fuels. So a lot of it is partially combusted fossil fuels. And the 2.5 bit of that refers to the very, very small size of these particles. Um, It means less than 2.5 micrometers, which is 30 times smaller than the width of a human hair. So very, very tiny. And that's how these particles can get through into our um, bloodstream from our lungs and cause uh, more than just the respiratory problems, the heart attacks, uh, dementia and so on. And the other main type of, um, of pollution that harms our health and is also connected to fossil fuels, is uh, NOx and SOx, um, and in particular NO2. It's something that we see a lot, especially in European cities, because it's from burning, uh, from using diesel in transport as one of the main sources. Um, and uh, that really causes respiratory problems for people. Thank you, Jane. That really brings it to the fore. I think that, that example you gave there about the width of a human hair, I mean, that, that really does, you, you can literally visualise that. Um, Eva, it brings me on to another area as well. You know, every day, pretty much all of us, I think, we use Google Maps, we keep an eye on what's happening in traffic and the routes we're taking, etc. But we've got other developments too. So things like networked air quality sensors, you know, having them in vehicles or stationary too. Do you think we can do better in this particular area? For example, better integration around data on air quality into inter interactive maps and making that really dynamic active intelligence if you will do you think that would be a progress area i do think so because i think if people are aware of 
particularly polluted areas and that they could really also take a different direction um, and maybe take just a small detour and be able to breathe in better air and which actually then benefits their health, they would. I've, I've also really seen it with my behavior personally. I mean, I have a four-year-old and a six-year-old and we go for walks a lot. And since really diving into the air quality topic and understanding the risks and implication of bad air quality, I really check, is the air quality actually good where we want to go? And if there are busy roads, that's not where I take my kids for a walk because I know it's not healthy. Or also in winter, when you have a lot of uh, wood burners, and then you can clearly see that in certain neighborhoods, the air quality uh, gets worse. And then that's not where I walk. So I do think behaviors can be changed. And then I just would take it a step further from Google Maps because I would advise to use our Siemens Mobility as a service apps because we can integrate that data there. I said already, I mean, for CO2, it's already possible. And with the data being available, we can absolutely integrate that into our apps. And we could say there's a selection Give me the route that exposes me to the lowest possible amount of air pollution. And that's then where I go. And then we could even take it another step further and say, what is the route where I cause the lowest possible amount of air pollution? And that might then also change behaviors as a result. Absolutely. And we, we've seen, you know, over the last couple of years, the level of expectational and behavioural change of consumers and ecosystem partners in many different ways. So it's entirely possible to help that. And again, it's making it accessible and making it easy to be part of our everyday, so to speak, I think is so, so key. And giving people that ability to be agents of change and feeling they can make a difference and the integration piece massively coming to the fore there. It's a great example. And, and on that point, Jane, as well, and kind of reflecting back on the pandemic, I think we also made some great strides around visibility. So one example would be John Hopkins University. And they had a great dashboarding, a really integrated data system, which was allowing people to, to understand what the current infection situation is, where they are. Do you think we can do something similar around air quality data too? Yeah, I think we do. We can. Um, the, I think visualisation is really important. And just to build on the, the example that Eva just gave about where she wants to walk with her small children, um, it would be great if we could see, you know, which is the least polluted route to, to school in the morning, uh, because there's been studies showing that that's when kids are the most exposed, as the, um, the toxic school run it has been called. Um, but oftentimes there just isn't the granularity of monitoring to know what the difference is from one street to another. Um, and where there is that granularity of monitoring, you can see that the difference can be really quite big. Um, one of the reasons is that um, even though these pollution particles are very, very tiny, they're heavier than a lot of the rest of the atmosphere. And so they can it can sit quite low down to the ground and uh, doesn't get as blown around in between buildings because it's so as greenhouse gases because it's so low down. So the difference between um, a main road and a small street just behind can be huge, you know, factor, factors of 10 uh, difference. Um, what we need for that, though, is more monitoring and maybe the use of low cost sensors, which have been or lower cost sensors, which have been um, growing in popularity over the last few years. The technology has moved on so much that now people can buy their own air quality monitor and whilst they're not able to measure the data anywhere near the level of accuracy as the government sensors or research grade sensors, 
what they can do is tell you, is this street better or worse than the next street? So when you're building up a kind of a map of your local area, you'll be able to see much more easily which streets are typically lower pollution uh, for when you're, you're walking your kids to school, for example. I think the other thing um, that we need to do to, to kind of make this more visual is uh, to tell more stories about it. You know, it's partly about the data and the technology, but it's also about how we as humans connect to the issue. And you, you've probably heard of the story of Rosamond uh, Kissy Deborah in London, whose daughter very tragically died from a severe asthma attack. Uh, her asthma was brought on by air pollution in the first place, and then the asthma attacks that she suffered um, in the lead up to her death have been proven to almost all of them be correlated with high air pollution episodes around uh, her home and her school. And uh, Rosamond has campaigned tirelessly to have that recognised. She had the inquest into her daughter Ella's death reopened and the coroner um, has said that air pollution is a cause of death and has written that on the death certificate. Um, there's also campaigners like uh, a doctor, uh, Dr. Arvind Kumar in India, who's a lung surgeon and has been for more than three decades. And he talks about how over time the, the people who are, he's seeing in his surgery with black lungs instead of healthy pink lungs now don't, you know, they're not typically smokers. They don't typically live with smokers. They've just been breathing in this incredibly polluted air for a really long time. And so telling, like, telling these very um, personal stories, I think really helps us to connect with the issue and see what we're doing to ourselves and one another. Oh, goodness. I mean, you couldn't have more human impact examples of that. And I think your point there about the visibility and the sharing of that, you know, it's, it's, it's so human and personal. Everyone can relate to that. And it just brings it home, for want of a better expression. A truly meaningful discussion today. And as we're here at the heart, at the start of COP27, I think it's so important and timely to remember that access to clean air is a basic human right, especially as we continue to see a disproportionate impact around air pollutants, particularly in underserved and underrepresented communities. Uh, so Jane, following on for that, I'd love to explore more about the company reporting of CO2 footprint. Obviously, it's key for every company today, but sometimes the impact on air quality isn't noticed as much. So for example, there's no bonus or malice system that there is in international emissions trading. Do you think a system like that would be necessary? Yeah, I think it's really important to understand our impact on air quality, like companies now understand their impact on carbon dioxide um, and other greenhouse gases. Um, we discussed before, it's part of the aim of the Alliance for Clean Air, this group of multinational companies, to first of all come up with a methodology that will help them um, measure their impact on air pollution for the first time, a kind of air pollution footprint, if you like. Um, but once that's been established and tested out, which these companies are doing right now, um, our hope is that it then gets integrated into other sustainability and um, ESG reporting frameworks. Um, the way that the Stockholm Environment Institute, who's working on this methodology with the companies, has gone about it is highly practical and it, it assumes that you're already doing the carbon accounting because all major companies are. And then it builds off of that to work out the pollution footprint. So it's um, it's not an additional, it shouldn't be an additional burden for the companies. It's uh, a way of them calculating, for example, 
uh, how they could prioritize their climate action so that it would have the biggest impact for air pollution and to see where the hotspots are in their supply chain, where there might be quick wins or things that they would want to target the most. Um, The other thing we're saying is this is actually already coming down the line in regulation as well. Um, The European Commission has drafted new standards for company environmental reporting. And uh, from January 2024, companies that are reporting under this kind of non-financial reporting directive will be required to report on air quality as well as some of the other metrics that have been more common in the past. So now is a good time for companies to start to think about this and potentially uh, look to joining something like the Alliance for Clean Air so they can get ahead of the game. Absolutely. Such a clear trajectory ahead there. And you're right, get in now and and be much better prepared for that. And you can optimise the shared value that attention will bring. As part of our conclusion now, I'd love to kind of just put in some maybe some practical tips that we can share with people listening today. Because again, we've talked about some of the complexity, but also how we can give more agency to change. I wonder if you could both share maybe a couple of practical tips that you might recommend that how people can make a difference around air quality or even around climate change more broadly. Um, Perhaps um, to Eva first. Well, take public transport. That makes a lot of sense. Don't take domestic flights because generally there's actually no time saving with that. And then also really think consciously about how you live and what what choices you make. And then, for example, I do have a car. I do admit that, but it's an electric car that I do usually charge at home from my solar panels that I have on my roof. And so I think it's about, yeah, seeing what what contribution we can make. And I think it's also important not to ask for very inconvenient and difficult choices, but really to still get us where we need to go, but do it more consciously. And sometimes in a city, it also makes a lot of sense to walk instead of taking any mode of transport. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Uh, Jane, over to you. What would your kind of top tips be? Yeah, so... um... Picking a couple of different things than Eva has talked about, I think uh, looking at your home heating, um, trying not to burn stuff. So if you've got garden waste, for example, and you typically maybe burn it in a bonfire, uh, see if there's a local facility that you can take it to instead or compost it. Um, And secondly, I would say get politically active. You know, if you're concerned about this issue, uh, ambient air quality standards are being introduced in Europe in the next couple of years, uh, in the UK this year, and uh, air quality policies are being discussed all of the time in uh, in many cities uh, around the world. So um, politicians need to hear from people that they really care about this issue and uh, that they're willing to back ambitious political action. So I'd say write to your MP, get involved, uh, make your voice heard. Absolutely. Get involved is is absolutely the way forward. So great points both there. And one final little fun question before I bring things to some close uh, with my final thoughts is, you know, when you want a break, when you need to recharge, where do you go for some fresh air? And perhaps to you first, Eva. Well, I do live in Bavaria, so I like to go up the mountain and just take in the quietness, the peacefulness and just breathe in and out. And that's what I do. I love that. I love the stories you shared with your children earlier in the forest and things. Beautiful. Fantastic. And Jane, what would your recommendation be? Where would you go to to relax, unwind and enjoy the air? I love being on my bicycle. Um, so I to get some fresh air, I uh, hop on my bike and cycle around the hills near my home. 
Fantastic. I love that. And um, I don't know if this is a good idea or not, but I've just committed to do an open water swim. So I'll definitely be getting some fresh air and uh, some very cold water, I think, as part of that particular initiative. So fantastic examples. Thank you. Um, And it kind of leads it to me now to bring this to a close. I think this is particularly an episode that we could do another hour on very, very easily. Um, But I'd love to kind of say my final thoughts, really, A, what a meaningful discussion today. And as we're here at the heart, at the start of COP27, I think it's so important and timely to remember that access to clean air is a basic human right, especially as we continue to see a disproportionate impact around air pollutants, particularly in underserved and underrepresented communities. I think it's also clear the role of collaboration. You know, ecosystem partnership really matters, particularly aspects like the Clean Air Initiative. I love the fact that you've got this collaborative community coming together. You have the founding partners such as Siemens here today. And we've also seen the role of technology and innovation to really accelerate air quality improvements, including things like mobility as a service. So we're really showing here also particularly the role of smart mobility or smart transportation. It's right at the hub of the wheel, so to speak, the heart of change that we can do things that really scale and sustain impact in this area. So for my narrative, it's time to come together. You know, we can accelerate our focus, we can accelerate the transparency, but also the tangible collective actions around air pollution and help give everyone as individuals better conscious awareness and that agency to make change on an everyday level too. So such an important topic today. I've loved the discussion. So thank you, Eva. Thank you, Jane, for joining me. It's been an absolute pleasure. And thank you all for watching and listening too. We really value all your feedback and questions. Thank you, everyone. Thanks for having us. Thanks, everyone. It's been a pleasure.